can please be seated. Please turn in your Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter 12. I have the full passage. It's the whole chapter on your insert. No outline because this is uh, one of those cases where it's just telling a a unified story. You just have to take it on the whole. And so I'm going to ask you with it in your hand to be sure to pay close attention following along. We'll go through it, obviously, as I read it, and then we'll walk through the passage together as we see uh, the ongoing actions of God in the book of Acts. And we have seen the gospel spread in this book, starting at Jerusalem with the Jews at first in a small way, and then advancing out to the Samaritans, and then advancing to the Ethiopian eunuch through Philip. Then a man named Saul of Tarsus is taken uh, by Christ and made his servant in an amazing way. Then the gospel spreads to the Gentiles. Cornelius is kind of the picture of the gate opening to the Gentiles. And then to the city of Antioch. That's where we left off. Unnamed evangelists called by God bring the gospel to a place that becomes a beachhead for the missionary enterprises of Saul who becomes Paul. It's a beautiful picture of the growing expansion of the gospel. And all the while... Satan and his minions are trying to stop it. And that never stops until Christ come again. But also what never stops is the advance of the kingdom. And that's that underlying message that is there for us as we read this amazing account. This account is is one of the most dynamic in the narrative literature of the New Testament. It's real history. It's got drama in it. It even has humor laced in there, some irony. And it gives you hope and it gives you um, a message or clarity about God's sovereignty and his move to grow his church. With that intro, let's hear now God's word read. This is Acts 12. Follow as I read these verses. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison. But earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now, when Herod was about to bring him out, on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord. And they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, He went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice, in her joy, she did not open the gate. 
but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you're out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, it is his angel. But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. Now when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord, and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of a god and not of man, a man. Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. Lord, please guide us in understanding your word. Guide the preaching of your word this moment. Please keep me from error so that your people might be fed well. We trust in your spirit to understand your word and to apply its truth. The story of your actions that we call the book of Acts is a great encouragement to us. This is the true history of your sovereign intervention to expand your kingdom, and it gives us great confidence and joy. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen. If we were to summarize the message or the theme of this episode in Acts 12, we might say the enemies of God have always tried to squelch the spread of the gospel, but they fail. Or it might be said another way the destructive ambitions of man have long sought to overshadow God, but God crushes such rebellion on the way to expanding. Christ's kingdom. James Boyce summarized it like this. The enemies of the cross have always opposed the gospel, but in spite of them, the good news spreads. Let's walk through this passage and see exactly how this unfolds. You've heard the story. It's an amazing story. And it begins with one of the Herods. Now, we've probably had enough of the Herods in our New Testament reading. Good reason. There's five of them. Uh, And they span a reign of over a hundred years between the five of them, just before the time of Christ and then on into the time through the apostles. Let's begin. Verse 1. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. Now, the Herods were a family of kings that ruled Judea, the state of Judea, where Jerusalem and the temple were. The first Herod was Herod the Great. He's the one responsible for restoring the temple and building much of the construct, or constructing much of uh, the buildings around the temple complex. The great was given to him because of how much pride he restored to Israel with his building campaigns. After Herod the Great was Herod Archelaus, who was never actually called a king. He was a tetrarch. 
he is the one responsible for trying to kill the babies when Jesus was born. Then there's Herod Antipas. He's the one that spans the life and ministry of Christ. He's the one who had John the Baptist beheaded and later was at the trial of Christ. The Herod we have in this passage, Acts 12, is Agrippa I. He didn't reign for a long time. He loved the applause of the Jews and he wanted to keep the Romans happy. See, that's what the Herods were about. They weren't in the line of David. Some of them weren't even fully Jewish. So the Jewish people could not stand them. But they realized that they were an important link between Rome, who subjugated them, and themselves, and their ability to be free and do what they wanted to do. So they put up with Herod for that reason. Herod loved his power, loved his position, loved all that came to him. So he would do what he could to appease the Jews, to keep them peaceful. That would make the Romans happy. And that's how the Herods lived their lives. And Agrippa I was the most cunning, maybe, of all of them politically. The Christians became a focus of both the Jews and the Romans, an irritant to the Jews as they would preach in the temple and proclaim Christ. The Romans didn't like how they were stirring things up and could have caused a riot, trouble for them. So Agrippa decides to take action, the first violent action against an actual apostle. Others had been killed, but now look at verse 2. Speaking of Herod Agrippa, he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. Now, there are three Jameses. Another one's mentioned later. There are several Marys. There are uh, several Johns. These are common names. This James is the brother of John, the fellow son of Zebedee, sons of thunder, the inner circle of Jesus. He reaches out his hand with a sword, and he kills one of the apostles. This had to devastate the church in Jerusalem. The thought of one of their own, one of their strong apostolic leaders being slaughtered by Agrippa. This was a new level now, the king of Israel doing this. Verse 3, and when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. We know what he wants with Peter. He wants to do the exact same thing. He wants to kill him. Imagine the devastation on the early church if Peter is killed too. Momentum is building, but only one thing stops him, at least humanly speaking. Verse Verse 3, the second part. This was during the days of unleavened bread. See, at this time, leading to Passover, they could not arrest and try and convict. This is why they had to rush it so quickly with Jesus' trial and had the Romans do most of it. So he had to wait on Peter. He takes Peter, puts him in jail, but he knows who he's putting into jail. I think he goes for Peter because he'd be so strategic because two other times, other bodies, other authorities tried to keep Peter and they weren't successful. We've seen it already twice as God releases Peter when he's put in jail. This was during the days of unleavened bread, so look at what he does to make sure. When he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him. That's that's overkill for even Peter. But Herod's not going to make a mistake here. He's going to make sure that that he is able to take Peter out. This would be a devastating blow to the early church says that he is intending after Passover to bring him out to the people. This is so he can execute him. There's no question what his intentions are. But notice what happens. When Peter's taken, the church is no doubt mourning the loss of James. The response of the church, pressed by this trial, verse 5, so Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him, for Peter, was made to God by the church. Fervent prayer. 24-7 prayer, 
lots of praying in the early church. You know, we talk about the fantastic things that happened in the early church era. There are some amazing miracles that occurred. And more so in that era than any other era probably as the kingdom uh, has just been ushered in by Christ and now churches are being established and the word of God is being finished, penned, and scripturated so we'll have it for generations. And we tend to focus on those things uh, that we see that are these amazing stories of miracles and movements and so forth. But don't miss the recurring practice of the church is to pray. It's to pray together. It's a means of God's grace to call upon God for his help, for his assistance, not to do what we want to do, but to align, our, to align our wills with his. So we pray earnestly when trials come. And it's an earnest prayer that would make us want Peter to stay alive, the early church is thinking. Uh, the impact of the gospel going forth. Lord, please save him. Sustain him. It wasn't God's will to sustain James. Certainly James would have been an important strength for the church. His brother John lived into old age and was very important for the church. But God is wise, and he knows who he has appointed, where and when and why, and for how long. But the church's desire is for Peter to be alive. He offers, they offer their desire unto God for that which is agreeable to his will, and they pray earnestly until God says otherwise. Prayer for church leaders. That's something we should be more about, shouldn't we? Pray for your leaders locally and those who represent the name of Christ in a, in a wider way, but especially locally. Think of what, if you want to know what to pray, think of Barnabas. Remember what Barnabas prayed? Be faithful to Jesus and focused on the mission of the gospel. Pray that for your leaders. Pray that for one another, but certainly pray this for our leaders. In addition, pray for our humility. Pray for our purity, for wisdom, protection, all those things. The people of God praying for their leaders. This is a huge strength and strengthening tool that the Lord gives to our disposal. We see it happening here in the early church. Notice how carefully Herod has his hands upon Peter, verse 6. Now when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers. That's a lot I got to say about this. I want you to notice this. You know that person who could sleep no matter what? Okay, that's not really Peter, though, normally. You can't say it is when you think about what you know about Peter. What has happened that has made Peter able to snooze the night before his execution? Maybe two other jail situations. And Herod is so concerned that he has him chained to two guards. This is supermax first century. Bound with two chains and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. They're on shift work watching Peter and chained to him. Supermax. Um, when I go to teach at the seminary that I teach at, Sangre de Cristo, it's in the Sangre de Cristo Mountains, south in Colorado, and you have to pass through Florence, Colorado. There is a Supermax 80X prison there. This place is scary looking. Um, I drive by with the kids, and, you know, we just kind of think, you don't want to go there. Five rows of, of fences with, like, these uh, sharp razor type it, it looks as bad in a, a modern version of Alcatraz. Like the, the Alcatraz of the Rockies is what they call it. And people that they keep there, there's only like 500 prisoners, and it looks huge. Um, but everything about this place is super max. You have the Unabomber is there. The, the Boston Marathon bomber is there. Masawi, the guy who's the, one of the, the leaders of the terrorist attacks of 9-11. And they're saying that El Chapo will be sent there, who is the Mexican drug lord, because he's escaped several other prisons. He ain't escaping that prison, no how, guaranteed. Well, first century Supermax had you chained to the actual guards. That's what we have with Peter. I mean, there is no chance 
Peter is getting himself out of the situation by sweet-talking them or picking a lock or doing some, you know, martial arts move and putting them to sleep, pinching their neck or whatever. He's not doing this. This is clear. He is ready for death. And yet the man is sleeping. Those who rest in Christ can sleep the day before they die. And that's what we have. Peter, what a different Peter we have right here than the Peter we learn about in the Gospels. Here he is sleeping away. In the story, it gets better as far as how sleepy he was. Back to the text. Two soldiers bound with two chains and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him. Trouble for Herod. Trouble. When an angel shows up, it's always trouble for the enemies of God. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him. Now, if you have a spouse who sleeps heavily and snores, like my wife does, you could strike them hard, and they won't wake up. They just kind of mumble and roll over, maybe a little relief. So the angel has to, he's so sound asleep, an angel has to strike him to wake him up. That's how at peace Peter is. I don't believe that's a stretch to say. He is sound asleep, and an angel has to strike him. And the angel's not even successful at completely waking him. You would think that would wake you pretty fast. Struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly! And the chains fell off his hands. What an amazing unfolding of the story. But Peter's groggy. The angel said to him, verse 8, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. He's telling them to get dressed. Sounds like getting your kids up when they don't want to go to school, right? But it's worse. Get up. Get your stuff on. Come on. Let's go. We got to go. And he went out and followed him. And he did not know that what was being done by the angel was real. He's still out of it. He's still groggy. But he thought he was seeing a vision. I mean, Peter's seen some visions before. I think the emphasis on Peter's grogginess here and the angel doing all this so forcefully is to make painstakingly clear to all of us. When God decides to rescue, you're getting rescued. It's not about anything Peter does to get himself out of the situation. This is an angel of the Lord grabbing Peter, dropping chains, bringing him out into the street. Takes him, verse 10, when they passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord. And they went out and went along one street and immediately the angel left him. At this moment, the angel has done all he was going to do. Now here's Peter, slept in the road. Where, where is he going to go? He's going to go where he remembers everybody to be. Peter came to himself and said, now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me. I think that's kind of funny. Uh, good, Peter. Excellent. After that, now you say, now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel. And I think there is this irony and even humor woven into the way we people can act. And here is Peter. Now I believe it. And rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. He's awake now. Verse 12, again emphasizing, when he realized this, he's up now, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John. This isn't Jesus' mother Mary, it's a different Mary. The mother of John, whose other name was Mark. This is John Mark. We'll learn more about him. He becomes an important uh, player in the missionary journeys, and he is the author of of the gospel of Mark. He's a very young man at this point. Where does he go? To the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark. And here it is, where many were gathered together and were praying. They're still praying. So think about this in the background. Herod and his power in the sword. 
the power of evil working against the church, the church humbly praying to God for deliverance, working to deliver Peter through the angel, bringing Peter back, the power of Satan working against the power of God called upon by the people of God. And we see how the Lord in his providence ordains this to happen. A great, I could have said this is a story of a great battle, one of the greatest battles in Scripture. It's Satan trying to thwart the church and God empowering the church to reach out to him and to save them. Peter goes to the house, and when he knocked at the door of the gateway, verse 13, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Now, benefit of the doubt for Rhoda, they were scared. James had just been killed. Peter's gone. They figured he was going to die. Maybe somebody's playing a trick to get them to open the door. But the text seems to indicate she does get it. Recognizing Peter's voice, now remember, what are they doing inside? They're praying for Peter. They're praying that the Lord would deliver Peter, that the Lord would sustain Peter, that God's will would be done, and they hope that it means Peter will be alive. She hears Peter's voice after the knocking. In her joy, because she thinks it's him, she doesn't open the gate, but runs in and reports, it's Peter standing at the gate. Now, you would hope that these spiritually-minded people who are having a 24-hour you know, prayer meeting, I mean, I hop before it was I hop, Right? They're praying nonstop. Okay, Peter should show up. I mean, should they not believe the prayer they're praying? I mean, isn't it good we always believe with full faith the prayer we pray? Right? Yeah, that's tough, isn't it? We were amazed how we pray for things and then we're shocked that God would actually do it. He does it more often than we know. He always answers. It's just not always the answer that we are looking for. It's, it's a way to, to shift our prayers to be at peace with his will. But many times he just outright gives us things that are amazing and gracious. And we pray for them, but we don't always often give thanks for those prayers delivered. I'll grant you, this is pretty dramatic. So she goes and reports that Peter's standing at the gate. In verse 15, their response is, you're out of your mind. She kept insisting that it was so. And they kept saying it's his angel. Now, saying it's his angel is amazing too. They believe there are angels. But they're saying it couldn't be Peter. Why don't we expect God to answer our prayers? He doesn't always. He didn't deliver James, and I'm sure somebody prayed for James. But here we see an amazing movement of God. We see him behind all the details, of course. Peter continued knocking, verse 16, and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, you can just picture this. So they're so excited. They're crying out that he's here, he's alive. He said, be quiet, be quiet, and he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the, to the brothers. This is the other James. Then he departed and went to another place. He tells them what happened. Then he wisely goes to a safer place. Yes, God delivered him a couple times, third time, but no need to try this anymore. And he goes to a place that's more prudent, safer. Now we see the aftermath. And boy, is this... This kind of reminds me of the story in the Old Testament. Remember with uh, Mordecai and Haman? Herod's kind of, poor Herod. Starts with an H. I don't know if that's the thing, but Haman, Herod. Peter continued knocking. He tells them, once he gets in, what happened. When the day came, there was no little disturbance. Of course, this is a supermax prison that just got broken into, and here are these guys with chains hanging off of them. What could have possibly happened? 
there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Now begins the end for Herod. Uh, he had lost credibility now. People seen, had seen what happened. It says, then he went down from Judea, the state of Judea where Jerusalem was, to Caesarea. You remember Caesarea, it's north, down meaning altitude. That's where Cornelius lived. He had a palace there. This was an embarrassment for Herod, no doubt. Luke records then in verse 20, you could end the story there, but there's an important reason historian Luke includes verses 20 to 25. Um, Luke is writing an inspired history. It's absolutely history. By the way, on this amazing story, a few weeks ago we had a visitor come in after church. Um, they had been in a church for a long time where apparently the pastor did not believe the stories in the scripture were actual history. It was metaphorical. And this woman was, was glowing that a pastor would believe this. Now, you all don't care about this, but this will go on the radio at some point. So if you're listening and you're at a church where your pastor does not believe the Bible's the truth, get out of the church and get out of the pulpit, sir or madam. Um, we're wasting our time if this isn't telling us the truth. Total waste of time. I would be doing something else, and you should too. But you're here because you know it's true, and you know we need what it tells us. And so we come to the passage and see what happens of Herod, the enemy of God. And this is an historic account that meshes perfectly with what Josephus, the Jewish historian, wrote. This is Luke's account, the inspired account. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. His situation had arisen. And they came to him with one accord, and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. So he went to a place where he knew they were going to desperately need him, need to, to leave and live. So that's what Herod's doing. He's lost all credibility on the whole. So he goes to a place where they're dependent upon him and will treat him any way he wants to be treated. That's the background. Verse 21. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. Now, oration in the Greek language here is not your typical speech or even a sermon. It's a haranguing. So he was haranguing them in this speech. They're desperate. They need food. And the people were shouting the voice of a God and not of a man. They were deifying him. Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the, give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. This is the end of all of God's enemies. This is abrupt for Herod for sure, and it's graphic. Now, I mentioned to you, it comports with the account of Josephus. Josephus wrote Antiquities. It's the history of the Jewish people for over a long period of time. And he writes the account. It's slightly different in how the span goes. It's not a conflict. It's just Luke summarizes real quickly. He got sick with this intestinal problem. Probably were tapeworms or worms that they could have got. Parasites wasn't uncommon, especially if he spent most of his time in Jerusalem where the water was more sanitary. Now he's in another place where it's not. It wasn't uncommon for people in the first century to struggle with this kind of ailment, but this, as the judgment of God, now is unleashed upon him. But listen to what Josephus says from the angle of the Jewish, uh, Jewish nationalist, really. Josephus writes, Now, when Agrippa had reigned three years over all Judea, he came into the city of Caesarea, which was formerly called Strato's Tower. And there he exhibited spectacles in honor of Caesar, for whose well-being he'd been informed that a certain festival was being celebrated. 
At this festival, a great number were gathered together on the principal persons, uh, all the principal persons of dignity of his province were there. On the second day of the spectacles, he put out, he put on a garment made wholly of silver, of a truly wonderful texture, and came into the theater early in the morning. There, the silver of his garment, being illuminated by the fresh reflection of the sun's rays, shone out in a wonderful manner, and was so resplendent as to spread awe over those who looked intently upon him. Presently, his flatterers cried out, one from one place and another from another, though not for his good, that he was a god. Upon this, the, god, the, the king neither rebuked them nor rejected their impious flattery. But he shortly afterward took up and saw an owl, looked up and saw an owl sitting on a certain rope over his head. Immediately he understood that this bird was a messenger of ill tidings, just as it had been once the messenger of good tidings to him. He fell into a deep sorrow. A severe pain arose in his belly, striking with the most violent intensity. Accordingly, he was carried into the palace. The rumor went abroad and everywhere that he would certainly die soon. The multitude sat in sackcloth, men, women, and children, after the law of their country, and besought God for the king's recovery. All places were also full of mourning and prostrate on the ground. He could not keep himself from weeping. And when he had been quite worn out by the pain in his belly for five days, he departed this life, being in the 54th year of his age, in the seventh year of his reign. The account of Luke once again. Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down. It's when he falls and drops. Because he did not give God the glory, we know why. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. doesn't say how long that took. It was a brutal death. A brutal death. He did not give God the glory. This is a, a, a theme throughout Scripture, right? When we fail to give God the glory, no one can survive that. No one can survive this, especially leaders who will not give God his due and will not acknowledge him. Much of why we should pray uh, for our leaders to acknowledge God, it's not just to have like our agenda or this or that. It's, it's personal too. Because when you are in a place of power and you, do, you give yourself glory over God, I don't care whether it's a president, a king, a judge, or a pastor, you will not survive that. Only God receives glory. If you were to summarize the whole passage, I did it for you earlier, but let's let the Scripture do it even better, because that's what the Scripture does. Verse 24. This is the summary of it all. But the Word of God increased and multiplied. The Word of God increased and multiplied. It's wonderful how, as the church is growing, this becomes a synonymous phrase. As the Word of God increases and multiplies, so does the church. You see, the the church's growth and expansion is dependent upon the Word multiplying. The word being preached and the fruit of the word being preached by the Spirit is multiplied. This is the secret to the kingdom's expansion. The preaching of the gospel, the preaching of his word, it increases and multiplies. The enemies of God have always tried to squelch and spread the spread of the gospel, but they fail. Derek Thomas captures this passage by saying, No opposition, no matter how great and sophisticated it may be, can triumph against the power of God. Martin Luther said it in a way we all remember. Let goods and kindred go. This mortal life also. The body they may kill. God's truth abideth still, and his kingdom is forever. John Stott wisely said, throughout church history, 
The pendulum has swung between expansion and opposition, growth and shrinkage, advance and retreat. Although with the assurance that even the powers of death and hell will never prevail against Christ's church, since it is built securely on the rock who is Christ. What a great transitional chapter into the expansion of the gospel and the great missionary journeys that start up in chapter 13. Acts 12 forms uh, this bridge that reminds us of what God is doing and how he will not be stopped. And verse 25 sets it up. God chooses to use people to do this. He's sovereign, he's the one who works it, and yet he chooses people to be his agents for the spread of this message. Verse 25 says it. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. I conclude once again by quoting John Stott. At the beginning of the chapter, Herod is on a rampage, arresting and persecuting church leaders. At the end, he is himself struck down and dies. The chapter opens with James dead, Peter in prison, and Herod triumphing. It closes with Herod dead, Peter free, and the word of God triumphing. Such is the power of God to overthrow hostile human plans and to establish his own in their place. Tyrants may be permitted for a time to boast and bluster, oppressing the church and hindering the spread of the gospel, but they will not last. In the end, their empire will be broken and their pride will be abased. But the word of God increased and multiplied. Let's pray. Lord, we are so thankful for your authoritative word, its sufficiency. Dear God, what a God you are. Lord Jesus, what a king you are. Holy Spirit, what a powerful helper you are. We praise you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us stand together and sing the